Chapter Three of Human Toll by Barbara Bainton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. All week long, the puffing and panting throat of the flour mill belched vapour-columned arches, which, telescoping airily, spanned the river from bank to bank, as if purposefully linking the mill with fireman foreman's dwelling on the opposite side. Fireman foreman, a godly member of the Methodist chapel, shrouded by dawn or by vapour on his way to the mill to get up steam, was therefore seldom seen to cross. Some little ones, superstitiously awed by the mill's funnel belchings, credited him with crossing this waterway by the aerial arches. But now, in the unillusioned light and broody quiet of a Sabbath morn, the cold, silent mill, shorn of its nebulous halo, looked old and worn, an aged actor off the stage. The same unsparing realism foreshortened the river's width and directed those sentimental children's eyes to the mundane stepping-stones from foreman's to the mill. On the flat behind the mill, dawn-rising Chinamen shogged with nimble bare feet under their yoke-linked watering-cans. These busy brethren, meeting sometimes on the same narrow track, would pause, ant-like, seemingly to dumbly regard one another and their burdens, then, still ant-like, pass silently to their work. No schoolboys lingered round Bob Robertson's, yclept Robertson's, blacksmith's shop. For this sleepy day no lusty throat bellowed attention to the flaming tongues fanned from its bloodily blazing teeth. No luminous stars flinted from the clanking anvil. The lips of its wide-mouthed door were closed, and a cruelly prosaic touch were the Scotch twill shirt and moleskin trousers hanging across the fence. Their owner, George, the blacksmith's apprentice, always wore his Sunday suit on Saturday night, while Granny Foreman as regularly sluiced through his weekday gear. The front doors of Pat the Jew's courthouse hotel and its less successful rival, the Royal, were closed. Old Moore the pound-keeper, Dinny Donohoe the shoemaker, Tambaroora Phil the chemist, Fry the tailor, and other thirsty backdoor compatriots viewed this inhospitable restriction with equanimity. Inside the National School, the dusty emptiness surrounding the ink-stained, knife-mutilated forms was eloquent of relaxation. Dicky, the schoolmaster's old pony, roamed in solitary dejection all round the bare school-ground. The untrodden nibblings under the fence were dry and dusty, and from the quest of these he would raise his head, and thrusting it over the bars, eye up and down the empty street, then whinny gregariously whether for the schoolboys who had surreptitiously plucked every hair from his mane and tail, or for his workday acquaintances, the butcher and the baker's old horses, was not clear, even perhaps to him. As she entered the main street, still empty but for her, Eliza Hickson, commonly called Lizza Rickson, milk girl from up the river, crossed her leg and sat genteelly sideways on her milk saddle-bags, flour-sacks ingeniously partitioned into pint or half-pint receptacles. When she passed the schoolhouse, Dicky raised his head over the rails and dropped some of his dry gleanings in his whinnied greeting to Liza's old horse. But neither Liza nor her mount responded. Unguided, he turned round the corner of the school enclosure to Sergeant Tui, their first customer, across the river. The hollow resonance of her horse's hoofs crossing the bridge filled the vacuous morning unduly, rousing old Granny Foreman, whose night-capped head appeared through the small bedroom window. "'Liza, dear, do e like a good girl, and I in George's clothes. Twill save I goin' out.' But Granny bought no milk, so her double sentiment of hiding the limited extent of her grandson's wardrobe and observing the sanctity of the Sabbath appearance did not appeal to Liza. She turned her expressionless eyes on the old woman, and with, "'Who was your servant last year?' went underlaid up the hillside to the jail. She meant to finish her milk delivery in time to attend morning Sunday school, for, notwithstanding her double-milk duties on the Sabbath, she topped the list for regular and punctual attendance. Her next service would be the home of Widow Irvine, the well-to-do sister of Cameron Cameron. The house was on the flank of the gravelly hill, and as Liza topped this, she saw with surprise that apparently all there still slept. And as Granny McGrath's river-going geese waddled their way through the paddock next to this house, they too paused to joyfully comment on the unusual spectacle 
of an old and relentless dog-foe still on the chain. They were not of the order that take their pleasure silently, so shrill laughter was in their gladsome-beaked communings, but it was even more galling to the vetted dog when rank and file came in a united line, and through the space between the lower rail slowly and steadily regarded him. It was a relief when a chorus of triumphant Queg, Queg, Quegs burst from them. Now only the fence and the chained dog divided them and the long-coveted grass in the home paddock. An old mother goose was for immediate action, but her less martial spouse hung back for a further futile exhibition from the dog to burst his bonds. Then, as became a cautious general, he waddled under and led the way, prescribing a safe limit. Among the dewy grass they zigzagged their destructive bills, and after each swallowing pause they craned their long necks towards the impotent dog, and the aggressive, arrogant mocking of their queg, queg, quegs in varied keys under his very nose was maddening. To add to his humiliation, old Mare Kushla, on the other side of the fence, ceased licking her newly foaled offspring to gallop up from the flat. She stretched over the fence her head, with extended pricked ears and questioning eyes. Then she, with equine eloquence, whinnied for an explanation from the dog of his lack of hostility to these despoilers of her foal's domain. Tightening every sinew and muscle, he gave a silent but violent exhibition of his inability to reach or disconcert these invaders. Yet unappeased, she still demanded the same duty. Her want of an ordinary horse-sense to grasp the situation almost scattered his extraordinary dog-sense of Sabbath sanctity. He rose, and, inflating his sides, panted with mortified rage. Yet again he slackened his chain to the last loop. Then, with concentrated, soundless energy, he bounded with an impetus that turned him tail-end to them. When he reversed, he found that Kushla's eyes had added contempt to complaint, and that Daddy Gander was leading a whole orchestra of amused quag-quags. He turned his eyes to his dilatory master's room, and raising his head to the heavens, sent up a prolonged howl that was utterly free from secularism. The startled geese flew incontinently, a change of expression in their quags, and their falling feathers showed their imaginations were anticipating. Neither parsonage nor rectory kept the sanctity of the Sabbath more sacredly than this household, for Mrs. Irvine was a strict Wesleyan. Her home, on weekdays, was often honoured by the presence of the parson, and every Sunday at dinner. Indeed, it seemed to the culprit dog that he and his canine companions had to take on the subdued Sabbath atmosphere with the silence of the mill on Saturday afternoons. His fault now was therefore the more heinous, and guiltily, he sent sidelong looks to the room of his master, Jim, man of all work, but thankfully he saw the still-closed door. It was not the contented sense of a week well spent that had prolonged Jim's sleep, but the fact that the night before had been his monthly pay-night. There was no variety in Jim's personal mode of celebrating these occasions, but much in his gifts to Fanny, maid of all work, his fellow-servant, for in the first hour of their meeting Jim's eyes had eagerly sought the third finger on both her work-wheeled hands. From their unadorned simplicity he instantly made up his mind to wed her some day, and although passing years, chiefly of an autumnal tent, demanded an undue deciduous toll from Fanny's meagre locks and ample gums, Jim, to his credit, remained faithful. It was to this home Cameron Cameron's daughter, now Margaret Palmer, had some weeks back sent the child Lovey to be educated. There was little need for Margaret, tender soul, to write to her brother Andrew to bespeak his care for the orphan girl. Instinctively, from the first, this silent lad took the brown-eyed bush girl at his charge. Otherwise it was a cold home for her, for there was little love in the barren widow's buxom body for any child save Andrew, whose silence was his strength, radiating security even to the inexperienced Lovey. Quickly she learned to know that a word from André meant more than a speech from the others. The night before, under his tuition, his own savings had been supplemented by Jim, who had pared down his gift to Fanny to assist Andrew in the purchase of a doll, much coveted by the unsophisticated child, despite its fearful and wonderful shape. There would be a heavy reckoning when Fanny found that instead of four yards of flannel for a petticoat, 
Jim had purchased only two. Andrew knew this, and dreading her discovery, slept lightly, and consequently was awakened by the dog's howl. Hastily freeing the now repentant brute and impatiently noisy fowls, he took the milk jug from the kitchen window ledge and placed it on the gatepost. Lizarixon, ambling downhill to fill the waiting jug, was almost shocked into a standstill by the dog's howl. But later, catching sight of Andrew, she prodded her old Neddy into a hasty jog trot. Quite unconsciously, this youth had impressed her maiden fancy, and she had a little plan ready for delivery at Sunday school this very afternoon. Liza filled the milk jug, rather ostensibly draining the quart bottle. "'Good measure, Andrew,' she said to him, demonstrating that not one drop dripped from the inverted bottle. Most customers had accused her of a tendency to short measure by retention. "'Yes,' he said hurriedly, taking the jug and turning away. Andrew, she called. "'Want me?' he asked, looking at her foolishly grinning mouth. But she only prodded her heels into her horse's ribs. She had meant her plan to mature at Sunday school that afternoon, but though she realised that this was a more favourable opportunity, it took time for her slow, determined brain to make the transference. "'Know your lessons, Andrew? he nodded. "'Find the text?' "'Nah.' It's in the fourth. Mustn't tell, from him, checked her. I'm always the first at morning and evening Sunday school, and the most regularest, said Liza, making this announcement as an offset to his display of righteousness. Better be going on now, or you'll be late this morning, he advised, turning away. Andra, decidedly. What? Impatiently. She took from the saddle pocket a soiled pink wad. Catch, she said, but it hit him on the chest. He picked it up. Thanks, he grunted, unrolling and pocketing the acid drop, and allowing the sentiment on its kiss paper covering to flutter away unread, until her strategic, Oh, ain't you going to read what's on the kiss paper? It's about you, appealed to his egotism, and he took up the paper and read, If I see thy head on another's knee, then I'll knock saucepans out of thee. Then ungallantly he put the lolly and its love proxy on the gatepost. I didn't give it to you. I throwed it at you. Know why? No, because I throwed me rubbish where I throwed me love, simpered sex-sophisticated Liza, her sunburnt face flooded with a mulberry hue. Don't be a fool. And he turned away his disgusted face. I ain't. As a guarantee, she called, Andra, you be my sweetheart, and I'll be yours.' "'Ugh, you, get on with your milk bags,' he snorted, hastening into the haven of Jim's room. Ignoring Jim's hazy invitation, to give it a name, he sobered Jim's shouting hospitality by drenching him with the contents of the tin jug. Jim sat up and tried to moisten his palate with his dry tongue. "'What's the time?' he asked. As if in answer, the cracked bell of the little Scotch church, first to begin and last to cease, clanged its first bell announcement. "'That's the last bell. Announce up this hour.' Both were immorally effective statements. "'Holy ghost, why didn't you wake me afore?' reproachfully asked Jim, staggering up. The bells of the rival churches were swift to follow the despised leader, and the combined clamour awoke the little girl. "'Look,' said Fanny to Andrew, as he, with studied diplomacy, went to get the first, therefore the brunt, of her anger. "'Look at them potatoes!' In this Sabbath-keeping household, all Sunday duties possible were performed on the preceding day. Therefore Andrew, in consideration for Fanny, curling the child's hair, had overnight pared the potatoes for Sunday's dinner. Fanny's observation was very limited and not till this morning did she find that the whole dish of potatoes, so thickly shorn by Andrew in record time, now lay in the bottom of a small dipper. Then, in addition, she enlarged on her real grievance, her just share expended on Ursie's doll. But her tirade was cut short by an unearthly wail from the child's room. Ursula felt her curl-carbuncled head. The papers were all in. She got up to look for her doll. 
Finding, in her sleep contortions, she had broken off a leg, she gave Rachel's cry, which the boy never forgot. Its poignancy startled even Fanny, who went speedily to the room, but her resentment rekindled when she found the cause to be the maimed doll. "'Serves the both of yous right,' snarled she. But Andrew soon partially assuaged the tearful child's maternal grief. He could easily mend this doll, and later he and Jim would get her better. And now the longed-for Sunday had come, washed, uncurled, and dressed in a grotesquely long black frock and gloves, which, to keep on, she had to shut her hands. Ursie was ready for church service at nine o'clock, all but her hat. Her first hat lay in a bandbox in her aunt's room, under the widow's new black bonnet, and the little girl's impatient feet many times went to and from the shut door. Andrew ventured at last to knock, then to intrude his head, and, discreetly augmenting the time, made a demand for the hat. The bandbox was produced, and Ursie was called, and joyfully elevated her eager little face for this large hat, mushroom in shape. Wide strings tied under the chin drew it down till the back brim grazed on the child's shoulders. It was the style of hat worn when the aunt was a child, and though forty years stood between their ages, she saw nothing incongruous about it, and the wilderness had stood between the child and all hats, so she was ignorantly content. Andrew was sent to invite a visiting minister to dinner, and Ursie commanded to wait on the veranda. The bells had started anew, apparently refreshed by breakfast. Sunday church, new dress, gloves and hat. Ursula's heart bounded. She would be good on Sunday. A buzzing hornet plied mud-laden between the river and his nest in the chimney-corner above the honeysuckle. Working at his nest on Sunday? She was shocked. Wicked twittering swallows were likewise disregarding and desecrating this holy day. She rather feared the hornet, but she vigorously shooed the naughty swallows till both her gloves fell off, but persisted in her devout efforts till the hornet, apparently disapproving of her interference, circled above her head, buzzing ominously. Despite the righteousness of her cause, she was vanquished. Retreating, she watched these uninfluenced sinners fly riverward for more mud, and as the result of the past few weeks' teaching, meditated on the judgment sure to overtake them. In their garden, just beneath her, and separated from her aunt's paddock only by a gully, the Chinamen still laboured. They were bigger than the hornets or birds, therefore wickeder. Her little heart beat faster at the sight of these grown-up Sabbath desecrators, till their offence was absorbed by a greater. Her aunt's fence ran along the river-bank, and on the top rail of this several boys laboriously but adroitly balanced their progress up the river. Towels round their necks made clear their purpose. In varied ways all were intent on attracting the Chinamen, for the purpose of demonstrating the superiority of the white over the coloured races. Some shouted offensive orders, others variegated chinky chows or ching-chongs. The watching child got her first lesson in the gesticulative boy language of contempt, supplied by thrust-out tongues, bacon that fat, and other indications of scornful disgust, but for her mercifully confined to sight, not sound. However, it seemed all in the day's work to the apparently oblivious gardeners, but the limit to the horrified child's endurance was reached when she saw these boys make a hasty raid on the unripe peaches of a laden tree growing in the corner between and overhanging both gardens. With a bursting heart she ran to Fanny. "'Fanny!' she gasped. "'Naughty, wicked boys! Go on to bogey! Bathe! On Sunday are still on Aunt's peaches!' Fanny, after making good the quantity of potatoes that Andrew's prodigality of paring necessitated, was now ungraciously preparing a salad, an extra order for the visitor parson. Let them bogey till they bust. But, Fanny, they're stealing, and it's Sunday. The child was tensely pallid. Sunday me I and Betty Martin, retorted Fanny, blinking her eyes, and in tones harmonising with her radish scraping. What Betty Martin? asked the chilled child looking at both Fanny's eyes, and hoping for a more sympathetic guide and counsellor in historical Betty Martin. "'Any fool knows,' said equally puzzled Fanny. 
and at the moment Jim came hastily in with the day's wood, a duty ignored in the excitement of the night before. The sight of him recalled to Ursula her maimed doll. "'Jim,' she said, her lips twitching tremulously, "'my doll's leg fall off in the bed last night, and naughty wicked boys are stealin' and—' and goin' to go bogeyin' on Sunday. Sharp and not short was Fanny's lecture to Jim about the shortage in her flannel length, and emphatic her disbelief in Jim's assertion that old Brooks, the draper, had took him in. The price of the doll was the true explanation, and, at the child's reference to it, Jim agitatedly buried his head in the dipper, and, blind to the potatoes at the bottom, rapidly drained them, then went quickly out. Disconcerted, Ursie went back to the veranda. Below the front of the house, in the hollow that the boundary fence separated from the Chinese gardens, numberless crickets filed their saws, with impartial, unsectarian opposition to the again clanging bells. Jim had told her it was sure to rain when these earth-hiding creatures crooked. No church for her, then, and— as if in answer to their spiteful request, goose-coloured clouds began to gather in the west. However, across one cloud the end of a rainbow trailed fadingly. Ursula eyed it with a meaning born of the day. A little bit of Mrs. God's sash! But the grey soon covered it. The child's heart was leaden, for it might rain before church. Vague discontent with this holy home stirred her and indefinitely she longed for some place where there was neither God to offend nor devil to fear. When Andrew joined her, she was wiping her eyes with her gloves. "'What's up, Ursie?' "'Andrew,' she said in reverent tones, "'just now, up in the sky, I saw a little bit of Mrs. God's sash, but she's gone now.' He looked down at her, as she thought, in disbelief, so she described it. That was a rainbow, Ursie. There's no Mrs. God. Is she dead too, Andre, like my father? The boy looked at her wonderingly. It was her father's death that had brought her to this loveless home, but she had not spoken of it before. He led her to the end of the veranda and pointed to the Sunday-decked folk. Then she brightened instantly, putting on her gloves in a fever to be off that moment. However, they had not long to wait for the widow was never late for church. She took a coldly critical survey of the orphan in her clothes, a replica, save for bonnet and gloves, of herself. And for all her Sabbath emotion, the heart of this child of inexperienced bush years noted enviously the dangling beads from the bonnet and the tight kid gloves of her aunt. The last bell was still clanging as they went in. Mr. Sybil, the local parson, was a listener to-day, and sat in the widow's pew next to her. He rose to receive them, and Andrew engineered and followed Ursie to a seat near the end. The moment the bell ceased, a fair, thick-set man, adorned for the pulpit, sent a pair of calculating eyes all over the building, then gave out a hymn. By the strenuous medium of Bella Watson's feet and fingers, the inharmonious harmonium's preliminary was a challenge to cracked bell and sore-filing crickets. Andrew found the place, and Ursie, standing on the seat, felt a due sense of importance in holding half his hymn-book. If there was individuality in the time and tune of many of the brothers and sisters, none were too critical, church being no place for the critical. The long prayer following the singing, despite its originality and brogue, was very trying to the kneeling restless child. More singing followed, and then came an opportunity of studying the preacher, as he, with suggestive unctuousness and double meaning, read a selection from the various Gospels of Christ's healing the blind, the sick, the lame, every miracle performed by the Saviour but that of raising the dead. There was a deep and double significance in the finishing passage, in which Jesus endows certain of his disciples with the power to likewise heal, a significance accentuated by the preacher's solemn, slow repetition of it as a text to his sermon. According to a custom instituted by Mr. Civil, the collection should precede the sermon, as many often made the length of his a pretext for leaving, and so dodging the plate. Anticipatory, Andrew slipped his usual small coin into Ursie's palm, that she might experience the blessedness of giving. 
plate-bearers, brothers Foreman and Weldon, conscious of the dignity of their high office, stiffened into willing readiness. But today this visiting brother Parson, though duly apprised, ignored the rule in favour of one of his own. Vainly the true shepherd sought to guide the collectors by directing impatient eyes, for he of the pulpit had been swift of action and had begun his sermon. Both brothers thereupon relaxed into flabby ordinariness, till the unorthodoxy of the parson held even them. The preacher was rapidly becoming notorious for his compound of soul and body curing, with the emphasis on the body. He was ever most careful to explain that he had been studying for a physician when he received his call to go and labour in the Lord's vineyard. And if the pay for the soul services was generally in the smaller coin, there were whispers in his many and unduly changed circuits that his body ministrations were much more profitable. This circumstance quickly awoke virtuous resentment in the ranks of the many orthodox and therefore impecunious labourers. Complaining reports had been made to headquarters, but though remonstrances had been made, the parson, wherever he got the chance, continued to work his double cure. His sermons were mainly anecdotes of his experiences in this dual capacity, differing only from the advertised quack cures by suppressed signature and locality. Nothing more definite than, I remember when I was on the diggings, or I was sent for once to visit a supposed-to-be-dying brother or sister that all the doctors had given up. Well, after riding day and night for forty-eight hours, I come to the place. A graphic description would follow of the body and soul conditions of the patient, the ever-varying complaints breaking the monotony of the never-varying happy endings. Accidents and diseases had no separate place in Ursie's mind. Her mother, she could not remember. Neither had she any fixed idea of her father's death. "'He stayed in bed a lot of days, and then Margaret says he died, and then we come away and left Boshy and stayed a long time till I came here.' She found it impossible to localise, or indeed realise, any of these graphic anecdotes with their miraculous cures by the impassioned preacher. Suddenly she remembered poor old tumble-down Jimmy, who could walk only a few yards and then fall down, and who was always hungry. Now if he could be cured! Eagerly she wanted to tell Andrew all about it, but he gave a sidelong look at the aunt and grimaced Ursie into silence. Her hat limited her view to the pulpit and its immediate surroundings. She sighed heavily and drew up her dangling feet, for even Andrew's hymn-book she was not allowed to play with, not to take off her strange hat, and while nursing it, give it closer examination. She speculated uninterestedly as to the purpose of that little fence round the pulpit, till she suddenly saw the widespread communion table, then swiftly took in the outline of the cloth-crowned cruet stand. Rather a small table for such a lot of people, but they, so near the front, would be certain to get some dinner. Her gratified heart shone in her eyes and flushed face, as, sidling up to Andrew, she whispered softly, "'When's dinner going to be, Andrew?' He took a hasty look at the other end of the pew. "'It's not dinner, Erse,' he whispered. She would have climbed up to her knees on the seat to be able to show him the convincing cruet, but for his restraint. He explained, "'It's not for us, Erse, only for big people.' She made doubly sure. "'Won't we get any?' he shook his head. She immediately divined the purpose of that yard round the little table, to keep poor hungry little children, who ate only a mouthful of breakfast, from getting anything to eat. She was on her knees with her arms round Andrew's neck before he could prevent her. Her eyes were tearfully agleam, as, audibly reckless, she sobbed. "'Why don't all the people go home, Andre? Tell them not to talk to em any more.' Andrew got up to take out the child clinging to him but the aunt placed a firm hand on her and drew her between the frowning parson and herself. Subdued and magnetised into submission, Ursula sat turning her tearful eyes from one uncompromising face to the other, but their attention was soon diverted to another weeper. The parson was recounting a most wonderful cure of a cancer that had eaten half the face, 
and the complete restoration of the affected part by a bottle of medicine, the properties known only to the narrator. Old Granny Foreman's husband, long past the biblical limit of threescore and ten, had died lately of this disease. "'He could have been saved! He were cut off in his prime!' sobbed Granny, her grief an eloquent testimony to the harmony of their half-century of wedlock and to the moving ability of the parson. Fireman Foreman's loose-lipped mouth widened in a filial grin, dentally interesting. Grabbing his hat, he nudged his weeping and likewise preparing parent. But the reverend storyteller anticipated him. "'Sit still, brother and sister. You'll not disturb me. The tears must flow, the tears must flow. Jesus wept,' he added brokenly, as a precedent for shrouding his own twinkling dry orbs. Like other lawful emotions, licensed grief is generally short-lived. Beside, Granny fully expected and wanted the distinction of being led out. In the critical interval following, she was resentfully silent. The wary waresman in the pulpit saw her, as she wiped her eyes, thrust in her consolatory peppermint, passed it from one cheek to the other, then glare at him. Unbalked, the alert showman instantly shifted scene and subject, and though these he varied often, the qualities of his brother in the Lord, sitting directly under him, had no place in the discourse. Neither had church debt nor stipend fund. According to every known precedent, the text of a visiting parson should be the great virtue of the leader of the loaned flock, until, in modest self-deprecation, the recipient of these clerical posters would be forced to shake his bowed head diverse times and oft. It was beyond the local parson to remain passive while this spiritual cuckoo pulled to pieces this little nest of his victim's weary upbuilding. He passed his hand several times over his bald head, cleared his throat, intimating so his disapproval of the unorthodoxy of this sermon. But his palpable restlessness and disapproval had no effect on the flush-faced orator. The majority were with him, for he knew his book of life, and was adroitly shifting the responsibility of their spiritual shortcomings and bodily ailments to the shoulders of their shepherd. Suddenly the victim filled the accusatory pause with a violent cough. The preacher waited in sympathetic silence till his reverend sufferer ceased, then asked with heavy emphasis, "'But how can a poor mistaken mortal think of your immortal soul?' when his own poor body is racked and tormented with disease. The widow turned her usually unemotional face to the coffer, and the concern on her countenance showed that the innuendo of the reverend alarmist had reached even her. But the organist's pretty eyes had forestalled her, and the glance she sent to the coffer said plainly, "'You want my care and attention.' Dimly, even the child knew, she sat near the object of attention, and upturned her wondering eyes to the sympathised one. He glared back at her. But as she had wasted no sympathy, she looked away, unaffected, and clicked her heels to break the monotony. The aunt, now limiting her attention to the pew, laid a reproving hand on her. She sat motionless, for, to her, a fearfully long time, with her feet extended stiffly not daring to allow them to fall in relaxation. The preacher was nearing the close, and intimating to those sick in body or mind that he might be consulted on both matters at the end of this service. A stealthy glance before and to right and left revealed to Mr. Civil that to sit tight was legible on the faces of many who, throughout, had audibly demonstrated their faith in the cures of the orator by their, "'Praise God! Bless God!' the rightful shepherd's countenance grew a grey-green, realising that the concluding sentence of this spiritual physician's exhortation, "'Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, without money and without price,' though only scripturally figurative, would have a disastrous effect upon the collection surely now to follow. The word money reminded Ursie of her possession, and she took a hasty peep at the coin in her palm, which did not escape the notice of Mr. Civil. But now, 
for the first time in church history, the collection seemed to have no place in the program, for the preacher introduced a closing innovation. Before sitting down, and without mentioning that the usual collection will now be taken up, he gave out the hymn. Both the brother-plate-bearers had been thrown out of routine by the postponement. Collector Brother Weldon's big feet stirred nervously as he looked behind for a cue from Brother Foreman. But he was no leader. It was an agonising few moments for Mr. Civil, and he spent them in locking and unlocking his fingers. However, the widow, clear-headed and practical, came to the rescue. She drew from her gloved palm her offering and extended it towards Brother Weldon, who with unclerical haste and noise took the office. The little girl looked round at the brothers, working their way right and left, upward, and very quickly she took in the fact that the object of these plates was forgiving, not getting, and her hand closed over her coin determinedly. The plate came to their pew, and the parson, with his eyes turned upwards, held it under her hat. The widow gave her fat mite, then passed it to Andrew, who made pretense of a donation. Eagerly Mr. Civil again took the plate and held it down for Ursie's church money. This time he looked at her, and she at him, and her mouth tightened in sympathetic tension with her hand. He placed the plate between them on the seat, and seizing the child's hand, forced it open. Then into the plate went her only hope and solace for a cruelly long and disappointing morning. There was a momentary pause, filled with strenuous silence, as with wide, mutinous eyes she looked up at this leader of lambs, looking down at her with the insolence of victory. She raised her face till her hat fell back, then venomously thrust her tongue at him, till her sharp lower teeth sawed the under-sinews. Given time, she would not have failed to reproduce accurately the long-nosed bacon-that-fat antics of those naughty boys that very morning, albeit it was her first lesson. Savagely the parson knocked up her chin, and with a snarl akin to Jim's dog, she fastened her teeth in his coat-sleeve. But Andrew managed to distract his aunt with his schoolboy trick of nose-bleeding at critical exam moments, and with handkerchief to nose, passed the furious child. This immediately bespoke her sympathy. Imagining him to have been the victim of their aunt, she flashed her defiant face on her, and taking his free hand, unopposed, went out. "'Andre, Andre, what'll you do to him as soon as you grow up a big man?' In silence, the boy looked into her eyes, blazing at him. He hated tears, but for choice he would have seen her weeping rather than this passionate distortion. "'Tell me what you'll do to him.' He went through a list of injuries. "'And will that kill him up and dead like anything?' savagely asked the bloodthirsty maiden. He thought there could be no doubt. She laughed exultingly, and the boy felt cold and strangely troubled. "'Won't that serve him right?' she gloated. "'Won't it, Andre?' "'Let's run home,' said he, to lessen the tension of her fingers round his, and to get away from an indefinite sensation. "'What'd you say you'd done?' asked incredulous Fanny. "'Poked me tongue out at nasty old Sybil, didn't I, Andre?' He confirmed her without enthusiasm, remembering the reckoning. Fanny grinned slow approval. "'Good on ya,' she said admiringly. Even Jim nodded satisfaction, and so encouraged the child gave an illustration. "'And look where he made me bite meself,' showing her bitten tongue. "'Knocked your chin-chin, chopper?' inquired Fanny. The new expression appealed to Ursie, and she nodded. "'Chin-chopper!' The cruel crawling cur, said Jim, might tackle someone his own size. I'll tell him what I think of him, promised Fanny, who had never been known to even answer back. Get her something to eat, said the boy. I will, for if she done a thing like that she deserves a real good cockroach, said Fanny, groping in the sugar basin for a lump. Ursula had barely finished when the click of the gate foretold the coming of the judgment. "'Ursula!' called her aunt. Led by Andrew, she went to her trial. The parson cited his case. Making a noise in God's house, keeping back his fee, and yet more heinous, her tongue thrust out at him. 
but the child, held by the unusual cue of the widow's stolid face, did not even look at him. "'Did you poke out your tongue at Mr. Civil?' demanded the purple-faced woman. The child nodded her head. "'Answer me, miss,' she replied, vigorously nodding her head, influenced by the widow's vibrating with anger. "'You wicked, bold girl! You! You! Limb of the devil!' added the minister. In the momentous pause, the child drew the back of her hand across her forehead, puzzled and perplexed over the different views held by the two women of this house. Remembering Fanny's indignation over her bitten tongue, she opened her mouth and again thrust it out. "'And he made me go chin-chopper till I bite me tongue till it bleeded,' she defended. "'Hold your tongue,' said the widow. "'I don't know what to do with her,' she said feebly, almost appealingly to the parson. "'Punish her severely, then shut her up fasting for the day.' said the shepherd. "'Flog her severely,' he repeated, noting the effect on Andrew. "'She won't be flogged. No one will touch her,' vowed Andrew, moving nearer Ursula. The widow's surprised eyes had gone mechanically to his face as he spoke. "'Don't you interfere,' snarled the parson. "'What's it got to do with you?' For answer, the boy's bravely challenging eyes met his, blinking vindictively. I think to shut her up for the afternoon alone, and not allow her to go to Sunday school will punish her, the widow said to him. Fasting, he stipulated eagerly. She hesitated, for to her fasting would have been the heavier penalty, but her adviser pressed the point. Fasting, she pronounced, cowardly looking away from the child, whose eyes had not wandered from her face. The gratified shepherd sat back, made a gothic arch of his long fingers, and over it looked for distress from the sentenced sinner, yet unmoved, still watching her aunt. "'No dinner, to be shut up all by yourself, no Sunday school, and no nice tickets,' he added. But she would not look at him, nor did her face show any emotion. She had enough service for one day. Andrew would hit anyone who hit her. He also would get her doll for her, so she would not be alone. And thanks to Fanny, she did not want any dinner. "'Will I go now, aunt?' "'At once. Go at once,' said the widow sternly, for the parson was now appeased. "'Lock her in, Andrew,' she commanded. "'And bring the key to your aunt, young impudence,' ordered the parson, shaking the right side of the severed gothic arch at him. Her prison was the enclosed end of the veranda, and the boy shut and locked the glass door on the child, who, according to his whispered orders, stood in the centre, watching the skylight above the door till the dinner-bell rang. But the watchful parson, intent on the carrying out of the solitary confinement clause of the sentence, had shadowed the surly Andrew, and made him repeat his Sunday-school lessons while dinner awaited the much-overdue visiting parson, evidently doing a brisk business. Consequently, it was a weary wait for the impatient doll-mother and at last it was hastily instructed Jim's towering length that darkened the window, and his long arm dropped the promised doll through the skylight into the waiting hands, then vanished. The troubled time of the true shepherd of this wayward flock did not end with the morning, though he was now in his stronghold, fortified by an unspoken engagement with its owner. Even here, this visiting brother in the Lord was tactful and steady to his purpose of disposing of his stock of medicine, charging, he said, only for the best drugs, bottles, and corks. Such moderate terms appealed to the widow, who, womanlike, loved a bargain. If she could get a few bottles of medicine that would ensure her safety in eating and drinking as much of what she liked at every meal, without fear of gouty rheumatism, she would despite the sniffing, snarling irritability of her customary shepherd. Ordering a good supply, she then demonstrated both frailty and belief by partaking with her comfortable adviser of an equal share of the second quart of porter. In righteous wrath, Mr. Civil left the dinner-table to walk off his bottled anger on the front veranda. "'Down in the swamps of Widgiewa, bye-bye, baby,' awesomely. "'All the big bitey black snakes are.' "'Bye-bye, baby,' reassuringly, 
but I'll tumble it off their heads, revengefully, and old civils too, and Andreo'll. The parson had sneaked to the door and looked through. On a box with her back to the light sat the swaying singer, with her doll held tightly to her breast. But though he made no sound, and stood back to trap her into a finish of Andre's onslaught, her quick senses had felt his shadow, and she turned quickly round. She quite understood his vehement finger movements were for her to drop the doll. Instead, her hold tightened. He thrust his jaundiced face round the corner of the dining-room. "'Bring the key and follow me. Only you, please.' With solemn portent, he commanded the well-fed widow, guiding her to the prison. "'This is her repentance,' he said, "'playing with idols and singing songs on the Sabbath.' "'Where did you get that from?' pointing to the doll, asked the surprised aunt. "'Out of church money. She, like another not very far away, would rob the church,' supplied the clergyman, from his many injustices, anxious to kick the nearest dog. "'Take it from her!' "'Pull it from her! Make her put it down!' he gasped. The childless woman, who had been a dollless child, took this one from the now unresisting girl. Under the widow's loose hold, its sole garment, a towel swaddling it, fell off. "'A nice play toy that for a respectable girl,' said the shocked parson, his lean fingers indicating the naked, maimed doll and its unabashed mother. "'You'll have trouble with her. Mark me,' he prophesied, and as he went out his hostess followed and closed the door. The child stood, when they left her, unnaturally still, her mind skirting mature ideas, unwieldy from her immaturity. Footsteps along the veranda passed her prison, and the click of the little gate at the side brought her mind to externals. They were going to Sunday school, Andrew too, and she shut up here. A hornet had entered with the other despoilers of her peace and pleasure, and, as though it recognised it had been trapped, it buzzed distressfully from skylight to window. She looked round, and with a sense of comradeship saw it bunting and bruising itself in futile efforts for freedom. Much as she had feared it that morning, she was fearless now. Evidently the hornet had regarded her as some inanimate object, and her movements in watching it dispelled this illusion, and brought it in a threatening circle over her head. She welcomed, without emotion, the hostility of this foe, for with its dreadful sting it was one worthy of her mood. Her lower lip relaxed, and the sense of coming battle radiated grimly from her set face as she picked up the towel that a little before she had draped with loving maternity round her doll. "'Shut up!' she commanded twirling the towel preparatory to making a bring-down onslaught. Majestically showing the advantage of wings, it rose above her reach, and from, for her, an unattainable height, it seemed to buzz a taunt at her diminutiveness. Its noise attracted its outside mate, and the child gloried in its buzzing butts to get in. Swizz! Swizz! She hissed in mad mockery at both. Making a ball of the towel, she flung with an effect that increased with practice, scornfully rejoicing at the cowardly discomfiture of a drowsing blowfly that one of her towel flights had disturbed. Its clumsy attempts to escape seemed to inculcate the same desire in many of the lesser species which swarmed round it, satellite-wise. She hailed any opposing force warmly, but concentrated her fight for the time on the again-descending hornet, suffering it to come quite near then making a vicious, well-calculated slap at it with the towel that sent it partially stunned to the side of the room. For swift victory she could have ended the conflict then, but she allowed it to revive and fly for a breathing spell to the dried bush, acting as a fly-refuge in the centre, rousing it to another attack, destined from its monotony to end the battle. Pinioning its extremities with the edge of the towel, she crushed off its offensive and defensive weapons with a splinter from the wall. The blowfly was her next victim, but an unexciting one. Pulling off its legs, she placed it with the hornet, and both lay side by side, unprotestingly. She brushed back her hair and went from door to window. The insistent, care, 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 of the crickets 
seemed to be the only sound of life outside, and inside the little flies had settled again, so the room was quiet. Both hornet and fly she had considered completely disabled, but when she turned to them they had disappeared. The hornet had flown to a dark corner, but the fly had unwisely soared again to the light. She captured both, and sitting down, slowly pulled off their wings. "'Ah, what you do that for, Ursie?' was a protest from Andrew, looking through the skylight. "'Cause now I know where they are,' defiantly. "'I'll make them stay.' "'Poor brutes!' "'I'll kill them all up,' she snapped savagely at him. There was silence till the boy asked, "'Where's your doll, Ursie?' She softened in a moment. "'Oh, Andre, that nasty old civil made her take it from me.' "'Wonder where she put it?' She shook her head, intimating that she also wondered. "'Where are they?' "'Still in Sunday school. My nose bled again and I had to come out. Look out, Urs, and I'll jump down.' He opened the skylight and, swinging with one hand on the ledge, dropped into the room. Hornet and fly, alive, but feigning death, were still in her lap. He took them to the fireplace and killed them outright with his boot. "'Put them out of their misery,' he explained. Ursie's eyes widened and mouth tightened, but she was silent. Later, when the boy's brow was moist with his earnest efforts to make a satisfactory doll out of a bottle by filing a groove around its neck, she from a sense of her own shortcomings, began to talk of the failings of others. With a preliminary sobbing sigh, peculiar to childhood, she began, her hand on his knee. "'Andre, you know what that Gus Stein done?' "'No, Urs.' "'Pelted a stone at a poor cat and headed it. Ah, oh, like anything!' Andrew expressed a contempt for boys generally, albeit it was he who, just before the advent of this little girl, had been to a boy's party. "'Was there any girls there?' asked Jim, an avowed admirer of the sex. "'Girls? Girls, Jim? At a respectable place like that?' "'And Mina, too. Know what she done, too, as well?' For Ursie did not choose to be the sole representative of a cruel sex. She took Mary Wood's poor little doll and swinged it round and round be the legs till the sawdust all come out. Andre, with a quavering sigh, that was worse and 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 doing that to them. Jerking her head, but not looking at the murdered insects in the fireplace. Andrew agreed, and contrition was the outcome. Did it hurt him, Andre? Same as to pull off your arms and legs, Ursie. She put her arms tightly round his neck. Andre, she said brokenly, I won't do it any, any more, shaking her head, burrowing deeply into his neck in emphasis. Shortly after, there was the signalling click of the gate, and the boy was up and out of the skylight instantly. The aunt had both clergymen with her. These were the days of the sovereignty of Moody and Sankey's hymns, and presently the vigorous voice of the stranger parson sounded meaningly in scatter seeds of kindness. Mr. Civil was acrimoniously disputing the orthodoxy of this visiting brother's intention to sing this from the pulpit at the close of the evening sermon. In all matters of theological discussion the widow took no part. Being a worker, she had little to say, but she listened to both impartially. Then there was a call for Andrew, and the boy, self-briefed to obtain an Ursie's release, was prompt to appear. He was to go to the visitors' quarters for Moody and Sankey's hymn-book. He first made his request in an undertone to his aunt, and it was granted in the same key. While he, fleet of foot, sped on his message, the child wandered in search of Fanny or Jim. The kitchen looked coldly deserted, for on the Sabbath afternoon Fanny, according to immemorial custom, was out walking with lady friends of like occupation, whose relaxation on their Sundays out was a weekly synopsis of the shortcomings of the various she's they served. Ursula found Jim, fully dressed in his Sunday best, sound asleep in his little room near the brick oven at the back of the kitchen. His red necktie had slipped above his collar, and its knot, twisted under the left ear, 
looked like a halter that had crimsoned in doing its work. Jim's sleep contortions had left a wide skin margin between the bottom of his trousers and the top of his elastic-sided boots, so the little girl credited his tight-fitting Sunday boots with the feat of having swallowed his socks, after the manner of her own shoes. She left him and wandered disconsolately about. Frogs from the river now seemed to croak bass to the cricket's shrill orchestra, but otherwise there was a stagnant atmospheric stillness that boded well for the sky's leaden greyness. But as though they anticipated nothing from the overcast heavens, the Chinese gardeners still laboured. Ursie supposed the boys on their return from bathing, and she in church, had stripped the peach tree, and hidden by the gully she went down to see. A limb covered with unripe fruit bridged the gully over her head. Digging her hands and feet into the crumbling bank, then gripping the branch, she hung on to it with one hand, and stripped off a shower of peaches with the other. From the rosy side of most she took a bite. Then, from a sense of mischievous revenge, she repeated the stripping till the limb snapped in her struggles to reach those on the highest parts. She came down under it, and then the shock begot by her fall increased to terror at the sight of a Chinaman on the bank of the gully, jabbering threats at her, and brandishing a pitchfork. The fruit overhung their ground, and mocked them at a safe distance the boys might, yet not one of them had dared openly to touch this limb. "'Oh, Mr. Man, don't kill me!' she pleaded, but he thrust at her with a pitchfork, then made as if to jump down. The gully tunnelled through to the river and she ran in frenzy that way till she came to the mill. Creeping behind a pile of firewood, she crouched, almost paralysed, draining in her terror the cruelest of nature's cruelties, unreasoning child fear. The river zigzagged through the little town, and from where she lay presently she heard a woman's voice raised in weird lament. Rising cautiously, she stood on a billet of wood, and saw old Granny McGrath running along the river bank, her feet and head were bare, and her grey hair was straggling in unusual disorder. Aroo, Henry! Aroo! Aroo! She shrieked piercingly as she flung up her arms to the leaden sky, then breathlessly beat her breasts, and the weird cry she seemed to strike from them awed the child indefinitely. Two other women with a sympathetic bond of race and creed were with her, and when their efforts to comfort her failed, they joined her in the national cry. Aroo, Henry, aroo, aroo! The child, for protection, ran to them. Poor Granny, she said, catching her skirt. What's the matter, poor Granny? Oh, me boy, me darlint, drowned, Henry, aroo, aroo! Beating her breasts. Oh, Mother Mary, a Christ, pity me! A tongue of forked lightning illumined the sullen heavens, and after a swift interval the rumbling thunder followed. As they turned along a bend of the river, men, two abreast, parted from those in the rear by a burden borne on their shoulders, came in view. At the sight of them the women's cries increased. The men stopped, and placing the door on the ground, allowed old Granny to take into her arms the dead body of her grandson, Henry the light and love of her lonely life. His eyes were wide open, and the tensely strung child quickly recognised him as one of the boys foremost in trespassing on God and man that morning, trespasses all of which she had committed, but in this boy's case so quickly followed by a righteous revenge. As if to assert omnipotent omnipresence, a flash of lightning splintered a tree on the flat near, and the noise of the thunder terrified the child into immediate flight, but this time she ran homeward. White and recklessly wild with fear, she ran into the parlour, and with starting eyes looked from the surprise of her aunt to Mr. Sybil's unrelenting countenance. "'Oh, aunt, what's that?' she gasped, for the vibration of a sudden clap of thunder had rattled the crystal pendants of the lustre vases decorating the mantelpiece. The voice of an angry god, said God's servant, extending his forefinger at her, apparently as an index to his master. She was not safe here. Frantically, she rushed out. Andre! Andre! she screamed, catching sight of the boy who had been seeking her. Andre! 
Andre, plant me, plant me. God's after me, he's after me. Plant me in the brick oven. He ran with her in his arms, and to comfort her, let her creep into this refuge, then putting up the lid, stood there till the violence of the deluging rain silenced heaven's flash and fire. End of chapter 3